I want you to think real quick about the words that we just sung a moment ago. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. The question that I often ask myself when singing songs like that is, do I truly adore him? Maybe that's a question you need to ask yourself this morning as well as, do you truly adore Jesus? I'm not asking you this morning if you can quote scripture. I'm not even asking you this morning if you're faithful to church. I'm not asking you if you're a life group leader or a deacon. I'm asking you this morning, do you really adore Jesus? Like, do you love him? Are the affections of your heart set towards him? Can you say this morning that with every fiber of your being, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, that you love and adore the one true God, Jesus Christ? Now, obviously, when we ask ourselves that question, one thing that we all are guilty of doing is nodding our head in agreement, thinking absolutely we love Jesus. But what does your life look like? What would others say? Would they say that you are a man or a woman who truly adores the one true God? Would they say that you're a man or a woman who truly loves the king of the universe, Jesus Christ? So my question again this morning is this. With integrity, can you say this morning that you truly do adore Jesus? Do you stagger at his beauty? Do you exult in his splendor when you set your heart on Christ? Does your righteousness begin to crumble? Do you adore Jesus? I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. We're beginning a new series that we're coming, O Come, or that we're calling, O Come, Let us adore him. This is in many ways a way for us to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, the Christmas story, as we approach Christmas Day. We're going to be going through this for the next few weeks, and we're going to be asking this question almost every single week. Do we, as a church, do we as individuals truly adore the one true God? Now, what do I mean by the word adore? That means great love. It means to love um, with an entire heart, with your entire soul. It means that you have a deep affection towards the one true God. It means you regard him as the utmost person in all of your life. So again, we're going to be settling on that question, thinking about that question, do we truly adore him? In Matthew chapter 2, that's the first gospel of the New Testament, the second chapter of the first gospel. It says this in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, some of your translations might say magi there, says wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So they come to Jerusalem, they go before King Herod, and this is what they say. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we came here to worship him. I want you to look again at verse 2, because there's some things I don't want you to miss. It says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? These wise men then say, for we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. 
In Matthew chapter 3, there are really three questions I believe we need to answer in order for us to understand what's going on here in this specific chapter. The first question I believe we need to ask is this, who are the wise men? In order for you, you and I to have any educated conversation about the wise men, we actually need to know who these men are. Now, we know that these wise men, they were the three people who came to the manger scene in the story that you and I are so familiar with. We know that these men brought gifts with them when they came to the major scene. Frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Now we know that anytime we hear the Christmas story, these three wise men show up in that story. And here we are again in Matthew chapter 2 where it says, Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And it says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So the question that I want to answer first this morning is who are these wise men? Now the Greek word for wise men is better translated as the word magi. Like I said, some of your translations have already done that work for you. Now these magi, they are from a certain people group. They are a certain tribe of people. They are the priestly tribe among the Medes, okay? They are Persian in nature. They were considered by their context to be extremely significant people. In fact, they had tremendous influence over society. So the question now becomes is how did they gain such power? How did these wise men gain such influence? Well, these men, they were skilled in astronomy. They were skilled in astrology. In fact, they were more like sorcerers or pagan astrologers than they were anything else. Some might refer to them as an occultist group who specialized, quite frankly, in mystical practices. That's who they were. Now, this isn't the first time in Scripture, as you and I know, that we hear the term magi, that we see these magi in the Word of God. And most notably, if you remember, the story of Daniel. Some of you are familiar with the Old Testament book, Daniel. Well, Daniel was known to be what? An interpreter of dreams, right? Like, that's how he kind of got his name. But you might remember there in the book of Daniel that the Magi, they were a high-ranking group of people who really served as advisors to the king, namely in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar. So when you come to the book of Daniel, that's what happens. One night, King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm just going to refer to him as King Neb, okay, he had a bizarre dream and he needed someone to interpret that dream. So who did King Neb turn to? He turned to the Magi. He brought the Magi in. And the Bible tells us that they were unable to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So they took that dream to Belteshazzar. That's Belti, okay? We're just going to summarize. And the Bible tells us in chapter 4, verse 9 of Daniel, that Belteshazzar, he was the master of the magicians. So Daniel, or so, so King Nebuchadnezzar thinks, okay, if these magi, if they can't interpret my dream and tell me what it means then I'm going to go to the master of all magicians and maybe he can tell me what my dream means. Certainly, the master magi can interpret this dream, right? Well, they go to him and the Bible tells us that even he was unable to interpret the dream. This is where Daniel enters the story. Someone says in Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, there's a man in your kingdom, talking to King Neb, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. Who are they talking about? They're talking about Daniel. And King Neb, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. 
What's the Bible telling us there? Daniel was so skilled at interpreting the dreams of the king that the king made Daniel the master of the Magi. And you're thinking, well, I don't understand the significance of that reality. It's extremely significant, church. What's happening? God has elevated his own into a place of power and prominence and influence. That's why this is significant. God is positioning his people for his glory. You you know the story. Daniel would use his influence to, to really speak the gospel, to speak truth into the lives of pagan people. But what's even more fascinating than this is that the Magi gained so much power and so much influence that you could not even become king in Persia unless the Magi gave their consent. That's how much power, that's how much influence these men carried in their hands. So they're powerful, they're influential, and they're mostly pagan. Now with that in mind, let's go back to Matthew chapter 2. What is Matthew writing this gospel for? What's his entire purpose? He's writing the gospel so that the world might know that Jesus is king. And in the midst of this story where he wants everyone in the world to know that Jesus is king, he says, these wise men have followed the stars to Jesus. You see what's happening? God is leading some of the most influential people in the world to bow at the feet of Jesus. That's only something that God can do. There's a large geographical gap between these magi from the east and Jesus. In fact, when Israel, God's people, when they were unwilling to acknowledge the birth of the Messiah, what did God do? God led a pagan men from a pagan land to acknowledge it. That's how God operates. One of the things I always pick up on when I see things like that in Scripture is that God has already, always been, from, from the, 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 the day that the world was created, God has always been a God for the nations. And here we see again Him being a God for the nations. But in many ways, church family, this passage ought to give us so much hope. It ought to give us so much hope simply because here we have these men from a distant land that are coming to God because they followed the star. Many of you, you're here this morning and maybe you feel distant from God. Maybe your distance isn't like these magi. It's not geographical. Maybe your distance is spiritual. You came here this morning because you were at the end of your rope and quite frankly, you're ready to give up. You have tried everything under the stars and nothing has brought you the fulfillment and the satisfaction that your soul is looking for. So just like these men, you are losing hope. But this morning, just like the star, you are gaining a little bit of hope because you're learning that maybe, just maybe, there is one who was born in Bethlehem many years ago. Maybe, there, maybe just maybe, there is one who's done everything for my sin. But see, your distance from God isn't because of geographical It's because of the spiritual. Your sin has caused separation between you and him. So why is that important? It's important because the Christmas story is an invitation to you. It's an invitation to you. It's sharing with you that you too can have hope in this world. It's an invitation to you to come to know the one true God, his son, Jesus Christ. And no matter how far off you may feel, you are not outside the reach of God Almighty. That's what we learn here in Matthew chapter 2. 
See, honestly, for many of us, the only reason some of us have walked into this church this morning is because we have made a series of bad decisions. One bad decision after another bad decision after another bad decision. Like I said a moment ago, that's where we're at. We're at this point in our life where, where, where we're ready to give up. These bad decisions have caused so much ruckus in our life. And for us, this church, church period, is the last place we're going to turn. But I want you to hear this. Do you realize that these magi, that these sorcerers were gazing into the starry sky? You you see the significance there? It was the starry sky that led them into their sin. And here they are gazing into the starry sky, which was the channel of their sin, when the grace of God came and visited them. And church family, listen to me, ma'am. Listen to me, sir. Maybe you are here today and you're drowning in your sin, but right in the middle of your sin, God is offering you hope through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you too, if you will turn to him, will have all that you'll ever need for your soul to be truly fulfilled and satisfied. That's the Christmas story. Through the stars, God was making wizards into worshipers. What an amazing, amazing plan of events. And listen, if sinners and sorcerers can come to Christ and worship him, certainly so can me, and so can you. See, if they in all their sin come and fall down in humble adoration before the Christ at Christmas, then certainly you and I this Christmas can come in humble adoration and worship him as well. So the first thing we have to answer here is who are these wise men? And now that we know who these wise men are, there's another question we have to answer. Not only do we need to know who the wise men are, but we also need to know what did the wise men do. What did the wise men do? Look at verse 2 of Matthew chapter 2. It says this, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here these men are. They follow the star and they find Jesus. And look what it says in verse 2. It says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The first thing that they do is they they ascribe glory, majesty to him. That's what it means when it says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? See, what do these men mean when they refer to him as king of the Jews? If you remember, Herod, King Herod, has claimed the title of king of the Jews for 40 plus years, right? Or for, yeah, for almost 40 years. He's, he's proclaimed that title. That title is for him alone. Caesar Augustus crowned him as king of the Jews. And you know the story. Anybody who rivals him as king, well, that's treason. That's the, that's the very reason they didn't like Jesus, When Jesus walked the earth and was referred to as the king, that that rivaled King Herod, which means that he was committing treason. But when the Magi referred to this baby as king of the Jews, there was a deep meaning. In fact, it was so deep that it provokes King Herod. Look at verse 3. It says, when Herod the king heard this, what happened? He was troubled. Church family, he was much more than troubled. He, He wanted this baby dead. That's what he wanted. He wanted Jesus dead. Now, why was King Herod so troubled? Well, verse 4 tells us. Look at verse 4. It says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, talking about Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be 
born. You notice that word there, Christ? That word Christ means Messiah. See, these magi recognized that the baby born in Bethlehem was more than king of the Jews. That this baby born in Bethlehem was the king of all. And they're ascribing to him the majesty that's due to his name. He is the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah of the world. He didn't come just to be king of the Jews. No, he came to be king of all. That's who he is. So they ascribe majesty to him based on who he is. But there's a second thing that they do. They don't only ascribe majesty to him. Secondly, they worshiped him. They worshiped him. It says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Ascribing majesty. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now that's their intent. They are coming here so that they might do that. But let's go down to verse 11. What did they actually do? It says, and they fell down and they worshiped him. See, not only did they intend to do this, they actually did this. And I wonder how many of us intend to worship Jesus when we come to the church gathering every Sunday. But I wonder how many of us can actually walk out saying we actually did it. You see, they recognized, these wise men did, they recognized the divinity of Jesus Christ. There is only one response for those who recognize the deity and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that response? Well, it's to worship. The question I have for you this morning is this, is do you know what worship is? Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. That's what it is. It's when we truly adore him. Worship is when our hearts and our affections are pointed vertical towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is when every fiber of our being, our hearts, our minds, our soul, and our strength are pointed towards the Lord Jesus Christ. It's adulation, it's reverence, it's exaltation, it's submission. That's what worship is. We worship when we value God above all. We worship when we treasure him as the one that is supreme above everything else in our lives. We worship him when we put him on display because he alone is worthy of it. Worship is about dethroning ourselves and it's about enthroning him and putting him in his rightful position in our lives. That's what worship is. Church family, please hear me well. Worship is not about lights, and worship is not about fog machines, and worship is not about what kind of instruments you're using, if it's harp, if it's strings, if it's guitars, if it's organs, if it's pianos, if it's keys, if it's microphones or no microphones. Worship is about, not about any of that, any of it. So when you say, I don't like it or I'm not coming because of all of those things, that's just preferential. That's all it is. Because the one thing that's constant hasn't changed and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and the very fact that he's done everything necessary for your salvation. For, so no matter how loud it is or how silent it is, no matter if we use mics or don't use mics, if there's 10 people on the stage or 40, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, what, it matter, what matters is, that the, is the fact that our hearts come before a holy God and we give him the worth that he rightly deserves. And that's what these wise men came to do. So we now know who they are. They're not much different than you and I. 
Yeah, they were sorcerers, and yeah, they were stuck in astrology, and that was really the pit of their sin. But just like me and you, we have things that we wrestle with daily, don't we? We have things that marked our identity before we knew Jesus. But these people have now apparently, the trajectory of their lives has now changed. They're going and they're seeking, they're searching for this God that was born into the world. And they show up at the manger scene, and the Bible says that when they got there, their intent was to worship him, and they actually did worship him. That's what they did. They ascribed glory to his name, majesty to his name, and they began to worship. And there's a third and a final question I think we need to answer this morning, and it's this. Not only did these men worship and what they did, but how did these men actually do it? Now, this is where it gets super practical for you and I. Because these wise men that aren't much different than you and I, who came to ascribe glory to God and worshiped him, we're going to see now how they actually carried that out. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So how did these wise men worship the king? First, the Bible says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I want you to notice this morning how Matthew piles up the joy language here in this verse. I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss it because Matthew doesn't want you to miss it. I mean, look what he says. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So they didn't just rejoice. The Bible says they rejoiced exceedingly. And if that's not enough, they did this with joy. How much joy? Well, with great joy. This was kind of like a quadruple way of saying the same thing. He says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew's point is that when these wise men came to worship, when these wise men came to ascribe majesty to the king of the world, they did so with great joy. But what are, we so, what are they so joyful about? Well, their joy came, it says, from seeing the star that would lead them to the Messiah. Listen, their rejoicing is not disconnected from their worship, and neither should ours be. Our rejoicing and our joy should not be disconnected from our worship before God. Rejoicing in Jesus with exceedingly great joy is the mark, in fact, of true adoration. That's what it looks like. The essence of worship is not only ascribing dignity and worth to the Messiah. The essence of worship is to ascribe dignity and worth with great joy to the Messiah. So my question to you this morning is your intent is that you came to worship God with your church family. So my question now is this. Did you do so with great joy? Can you say that great joy, exceeding joy, is a defining characteristic of the way that you worshiped God this morning? See, not only did they rejoice exceedingly with great joy, but there's a second way that they worshiped. It says in verse 11, they fell down and worshiped him. They fell down and worshiped him. It says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. See, by falling to their knees, they are ascribing dignity and worth to him. It's an expression that communicates the message 
that message is Jesus Christ, we honor and we know who you are. You are high and we are low. You are God and we are not. This gesture was more than mere homage. That's not what they were coming to do, it's just to pay homage. Instead, it was absolute surrender. It involved a clear recognition that they were in the very presence of God as they were in that room. See, falling down is their physical posture. Worship was the posture of their heart. Why is that important, Trey? Because the posture of our heart always manifests itself through our physical posture. And I know some of us don't like to believe that, but go through the Psalms. And the Psalms are not, uh, it's not rare to find physical posture directly connected to the posture of one's heart. And that's exactly what's happening here. By falling down before him, they are making themselves his subjects. The posture of their heart should be manifest uh, through their physical uh, posture as well. They are placing themselves at his feet as their king, thus saying, he's not only king of the Jews, he's king of the world. If he's king of the world, that means he's also king of us. So they fell down and they worshiped him. There's a third thing they did. The third thing is they offered him gifts. Verse 11. It says they offered him gifts. The op- it says then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, that word myrrh is not the redneck way of saying more. <laughs> okay? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. No, it's not the redneck way of saying more. Myrrh was actually a sap-like substance that was used for fragrance and flavoring. It's actually a thing, right? So worshiping Jesus includes joyfully ascribing worth to him. But listen, worshiping Jesus also included sacrificial gifts. Now, this is where the church gets a bad rap. You know, when people give ratings to a church, and if they give it three star, if it's a five star rating, they'll give it a three star and below because the church talks too much about money. But then you ask them to rate Jesus, and they're like, oh man, Jesus is a five star. How could we rate him anything less? But then when you say, well, Jesus talked more about money than he did heaven and hell, they're like, oh, oh let, me, let me reconsider my statement there. You follow me? Like, Jesus knew that money was important because it kind of controlled the heart at times. And what's beautiful about this is these men are showing us that the most important and most valuable treasure that they have isn't the possessions that they have. It's the one that they're going to worship, who's Jesus Christ. Remember what the scriptures teach us in Acts chapter 17? It says he, talking about Jesus, is not served by human hands as though he need anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, the gifts of the Magi are not given because they're needed by God. They're not given because they're needed by God. And when you give faithfully and financially to the life of the church, your gift isn't needed by God either. The gifts are given to intensify their desire for him. See, this is why we give generously. This is why at the end of the year we do things like what if and be the movement. This is why we call our church family to give above and beyond their regular gifts, their regular tithes and offerings. Why? Giving is not about what God wants from you. Giving is always about what God wants for you. Giving gifts to God is much like fasting, in fact. When we fast from food, we deny our desire for physical food so that we can intensify our desire for God. 
and we give financially, we're doing the same thing. We're saying, God, we're going to give this up because the one thing that our heart desires more than any possession of this world is, is a better, more frequent, intimate relationship with you. So when we give sacrificially, we're saying this, I joyfully give not to get more from you. I joyfully give so that I might get more of you. That's what we're saying before God. See, my money and my things are not my treasure. My treasure is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means, church family, to worship God. Let me say this, and I hope this plane will land. I want to say it clearly. You will only find joy in giving when your life is holistically surrendered to Jesus as king. That's it. The only reason some of us give out of duty and not delight is because we have not holistically surrendered our lives to Jesus as king. Giving becomes a delight when Jesus is king. So I want to circle back to how we started. Church family, do you really adore Jesus? Do you adore him? I'm not asking you again if you can quote scripture. And I'm not asking you again if you teach a life group or if you're a deacon in the church. I'm not asking you if, since you were a baby, if you've been going to church and if you were faithfully and biblically baptized. I'm not asking any of that. I'm simply asking you this morning, do you adore Jesus? Is every aspect of your life, including your giving, surrendered at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ? Father God, we come to you this morning and we ask you to give us eyes to see what only you can reveal. God, the question on the table this morning is, do we really adore you? And I pray that over the past seven days, or if not over the next seven days, we'll be able to see common and clear indicators that answer that question. Is our lives truly surrendered to your lordship? As a church, can we honestly say that you are where the affection of our heart is set? As individuals and as families, can we say that we value you and treasure you above all things? God, is there something or someone that trickles into our life that steals our joy and our affection away from you? God, I don't believe you wanted us to come to worship you like a fan at a Georgia Tech football game. I mean, that's boring. Nobody wants to watch that. God, God, I believe with all my heart and all my soul and all of my mind that you want us to come and set our hearts and affections on you in a way that esteems you as the most important being in all of our life, that acknowledges that you control each and every circumstance and situation of our life. And as we said last week, we don't have to be thankful for it, but we have to be thankful in it. And God, I believe that you want to show us that there are certain aspects of our lives, even this morning, that we have not fully and totally surrendered to you. Even as men and women of faith who, who say we love you and the cry of our heart and the cry of our lives is, is that we adore you. But God, quite frankly, possessions, material, physical things of this world, family, jobs, careers, hobbies, sport, all of these other things compete 
for your rightful, rightful position in our lives. And, and quite frankly, Lord, it's not rare for us to thump you off the throne and put something else in your rightful position. And God, we pray that you'll help us see where we do that and help us this morning be men and women that totally surrender to you in all manner of our life, our lives. Help us, God. Help us adore you. Help us honor you. Help us esteem you. Help us fall deeper in love with you. Help us not be tied down to anything in this world or to anyone in this world. Help the affection of our lives only be surrendered and tied down to you. God, that's what we want. That's what we need. We pray that you'll do this in the name, the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If my heart is overwhelmed and I cannot hear your voice, I'll hold on to what is true, though I cannot see. If the storms of life they come and the road ahead gets steep, I will lift these hands in faith. I will believe. I'll remind myself.
Sing out my, my soul that I am yours. 